What does it mean to walk in the new life that we have been given? If the old is now dead in Christ and Christ rose again, and in Christ we have life and we truly have freedom from sin, what does the new Christian life look like? Paul will call it this morning the new self. What is the new self? And more importantly, the question for you and me as we read Ephesians together is what does it mean to put on the new self? What does that truly mean? So let me uh, pray for us and we'll jump in. Uh, Father, we, uh, we ask that your word would do its work this morning. Uh, we confess that as we come into a room like this uh, as men and we read God's word, uh, that um, as, as Tommy Bain said this morning, uh, we complicate things. We complicate things um, by the way that we live, not always like Jesus. We complicate things with um, our brokenness and distraction and the things that we're thinking about that are going to come later. We complicate things by even baggage for some of us who have grown up in church for a long time and have heard different things and have caught different things and tried to put them together about who you are, and yet it's not true. And so, Lord, we, we pray for truth this morning. Uh, we pray for freedom and the gospel of grace. And we pray, Lord, that we would do what um, apostle, your, the Apostle Paul, your servant, is calling us to do uh, through your word, that we would um, walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that we have received. Uh, Lord, help us to put on the new self by putting on Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so real quick, I just want to frame all of this. And by doing that, I want to just give a quick overview. So remember, we're working our way through the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is six chapters. I challenge you, if you remember when we started, to read the whole thing in one sitting. If you haven't done that, I still challenge you to do that. Because it's so important to get an understanding of what Paul is trying to do. Uh, every single verse has a context. And I know for some of you, that's new uh, to really read God's word in that way and to recognize as we read it, you can't just read that verse. You have to read the verses in front of it and behind it to really understand. But that's really the best way to read the Bible. And that's especially true this morning. Uh, we're looking at chapter four, verses 17 through 32. If all you did was just read these verses alone without reading the context of Ephesians, you might find yourself pretty confused. But Paul is not writing these verses in a vacuum. He's written them in the context of a larger book, the book of Ephesians. And as we've talked about, uh, he's writing even the book of Ephesians not in a vacuum. He's not sitting down as some just theologian in a study. Uh, I think I'll just write some doctrine today. But he's writing as a pastor to a particular place in Ephesus, to a particular people who are struggling with particular things. And we'll look at that this morning. And so the first three chapters of Ephesians we talked about is what the gospel does for us. If you remember, we talked about how the indicative precedes the imperative, okay? And that's just a fancy way of saying is, look, what the gospel does for you precedes what you are now called to do in light of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus and, and our understanding of grace is never, look, here's what you have to do. And if you do this, this is what God is going to do for you. That is not Christianity. And if you've grown up with that, if you are living that way, if you know that, but you're still living that way, 
we have to retrain not only our brains, but our hearts. Christianity, the Christian life is not, here's what you have to do, and if you do it, this is what God's going to do for you. No, the gospel, Christianity is, this is what God has done for you, period. And now, live a life in light of what God has done. And that's the basic structure of Ephesians. First three chapters, here's what God has done for you. And then if you remember Ephesians 4, verse 1, that's the turn, the shift from the first three chapters to the second three chapters. This is what Paul says. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Here's what the gospel has done for you. Now, this is what it looks like to do, to live a life in light of the gospel. Remember, not to earn salvation, You've already been given it. But in light of the salvation you've been given, this is what the Christian life should look like. That's the last three chapters of Ephesians. Last week, if you were here, Robbie gave this great illustration of what it looks like to participate. Not just to be a spectator, but to participate, right? A lot of us were spectators last night. Uh, I heard some of you even talking about, you know, right? Um, We have lots of opinions about fouls. Lots of opinions about how that game ended, but at the end of the day, none of us were on the court. Not one of us. And I don't know if you stayed up to watch the interviews afterwards. And depending on how you, who you rooted for, right, maybe you felt a little bit of, of pain or happiness, but I promise it does not compare to the pain that the Tech players felt last night or the joy and elation that the Virginia players. Why? Because you weren't on the court. And so often, the Christian life, I think, unfortunately today, we live vicariously. You know what I mean by that? Vicarious spirituality, that we, we're just fans. And so we go to a Bible study like this or a church on a Sunday morning, and we're living vicariously through a teacher or a pastor or a preacher. But that's not the Christian life. We're called to get in the game, Right? And this morning, we're going to look at what does it mean? What does that look like to really live out the Christian life, to really be in the game? So let me give you another image. Um, So I used to have a 2003 Volkswagen Passat. Anybody ever drive a Volkswagen? So my heritage is German, so I can say this. It's a terrible car. Um, (laughs) And I don't know, I don't know how many drive European cars or German cars, but I mean, good night. I mean, they're just, they're they're over-engineered. And they just, they don't hold up. And so I had this 2003 Volkswagen Passat that was just constant. I mean, it, it looked good, but man, on the inside, it was just a mess. And what a great, that's, a, that's another sermon, okay? <laughs> uh, but man, it was just a mess. And uh, here, here's at the end, at the end, here was the biggest problem. It had a huge oil leak, and that's problem enough. But here's when I finally got rid of it is the air conditioner stopped working. And if you lived in Texas long enough, you know that's not a good thing. And it was going to cost like three grand, maybe 3,500 bucks to fix the air conditioner. I think it was worth about that. So I was like, man, I'm not doing that. What I didn't realize is the next winter is that in a Volkswagen Passat, the air conditioning is actually linked to the heat. So not only did the air conditioning not work, but the heater didn't work either. So again, so, so this is what it looked like in the summers. <laughs> Roll the windows down, you just bear it. In the winter, you know, I'm like wearing all these layers, you know, driving, you know, my commute's very short, it's like three miles uh, here to the church, but it's still cold, 
And it was never an issue until I was supposed to go on a guy's weekend to a ranch. And it happened to be one of the rare weekends when there was an ice storm. And because we're idiots, and because we don't get out much anymore, because we're all dads of small children, we decided, look, this is what we had on the calendar. Our wives gave us a pass, and so we're going. And, uh, but virtue of what I do, I had to be back by Sunday morning, and the other guys were staying. So I was going to drive myself in the Volkswagen Passat. Fine. I'm just going to put on a lot of clothes. What I did not realize, what maybe you didn't realize, is that your car, certainly a Volkswagen Passat, but I think your car is this way too, the, um, the heating elements on your windshield to melt ice, I think assume that you have a working heater. And they don't actually have the power to melt ice on their own. And so I drove about an hour and a half south of Dallas in the middle of an ice storm without really working heater and without an ability to melt ice on my windshield. It's not smart. Not only that, if you've ever driven an ice storm, you know that there are moments where you're going to hit ice. And if you've ever driven on ice, there's a moment where you start to slide, and your first reaction is what? You hit the brake as hard as you can. And then you start doing this, and suddenly you realize, it doesn't matter how hard I hit the brake or how much I turn the wheel. There is nothing that's going to stop this car other than the fact that I'm no longer on ice. <laughs> I'm just going to slide to wherever my momentum is going to take me. And I did that for not just an hour and a half drive. It took about three hours to get there. I want you to think of that image, that image of not being able to see out of a windshield and just sliding on ice with nothing to stop you. This is the image that Spurgeon used to describe what sin does to us. Okay? This image of sliding out of control. I want you to think about that. Use your imagination this morning. I want you to feel what it's like to slide and have no power to stop yourself. And now listen, this is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This is what he says. He says, if you begin to slip on the side of a mountain of ice, the first slip may not hurt. If you can stop and slide no further. But alas, you cannot so regulate sin. When your feet begin to slide, the rate of descent increases, and the difficulty of arresting this motion is incessantly becoming greater. What's he saying? When you start sliding, it's gonna, you build momentum, and you're just going to keep going. It is dangerous, Spurgeon said, to backslide in any degree, for we know not what it may lead. The Christian life is very much like climbing on a hill of ice. You cannot slide up. You have to cut every step with an ice axe. Only with incessant labor and cutting and chipping can you make any progress. If you want to know how to backslide, leave off going forward. Cease going upward and you will go downward of necessity. You can never stand still. What's Spurgeon saying? Look, the Christian life, what sin does to us, it's like sliding on ice. And the more that you slide, the more your momentum takes you, and you cannot stop yourself. You cannot slide up. Now, the only way to go up is to keep moving forward, to chip away slowly but surely. He used a word that maybe you caught it. A word maybe if you've grown up around church, and especially in the South, that's 
thrown out all the time, and the word is backsliding. When I hear that word, I think of Billy Sunday, I think of revivalist preachers, I think of that movie, There, um, I get, there Will Be Blood. I get that uh, sometimes confused with No Country for Old Men. Um, there Will Be Blood, and it's this idea of this kind of dark, revivalistic kind of preaching that says, look, don't backslide. But I want you to see this morning, brothers, that that warning, the warning against backsliding is real. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul has for us this morning. Backsliding, all it is, is again, think of a car on ice. It's sliding, sliding backwards, sliding backwards away from the gospel. And it's a real, um, it's a real danger for all of us. The other thing you might not realize is that um, the idea of backsliding isn't unique to Spurgeon, certainly to revivalistic preaching like Billy Sunday. It's actually found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. On your tables there this morning, I've actually printed out chapter 17. And as we, before we dive in to Ephesians, just to get our bearings, um, this is a Presbyterian church, by the way. Uh, you may not have known that. And this is our confession. This is our doctrine. The other thing you might not have realized is that it's actually beautifully written. Um, I, I, I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor here, uh, but this is a beautiful document, deeply encouraging um, in so many respects. It, does gonna, it is going to, if you're going to read it, it is going to take you some time to actually read it slowly because it's written in the 1600s, right? So you have to retrain your brain a little bit. And I have just, uh, before you print it, it's, it's chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession. Okay, this is our confession here at PCPC. And the title, if you notice, is Perseverance of the Saints. That's what it says. And all that doctrine really means is that, look, if you are a genuine believer in Christ, you will persevere to the end. And the reason for that is not because of you or because of the quality of your faith, but because of the faithfulness of Christ. That Christ holds in his hand all those whom he loves, and he will hold them to the end. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Remember, in love, right, you are predestined to be adopted as sons, right? You've been given a new permanent identity. There is nothing that can take that away, nothing. So you may have heard this taught before, uh, once you are saved, you are always saved or that you cannot lose your salvation. We believe that here at PCPC. If you don't believe that you struggle with that, I'd be happy to talk with you more about that and to help you see why that is such good news. We need that kind of assurance because look, our faith, it's going to wane at times, but it's not dependent on our faith. It's on the faithfulness of Christ. But here's the deal. Even though you cannot lose your salvation, that does not give you license to sin and does not give you license to just go on living however you want. And this is the warning of the third section of chapter 17. It's there on your sheet. I'm just going to read the first sentence. This is section three. And notice what it says. It says, nevertheless, they, that is genuine believers who are going to persevere to the end, nevertheless, they may through the temptations of Satan and the world the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and that they may neglect of the means of their pres uh, preservation fall into grievous sins. While it is not possible for a genuine believer to fall away, it is possible for a genuine believer 
to slide back, to go back to the way they used to live. And this morning, Paul has a warning for us. And his warning is, that's not who you are anymore. Don't live like that anymore. Because you cannot tell the difference in somebody else or even in your own heart, the difference between a genuine believer who's backsliding and somebody who's just acting the part, coming to church, saying all the right things, but actually has no genuine faith whatsoever in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's Paul's warning for us this morning. So very quickly, uh, I want to look at this in just two ways. What does it look like to put off the old self? What does it look like to put on the new self? This is what Paul says. What does it look like to put off the old self? Verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, you've been given all of this in Jesus. You've been adopted as sons. You've been given salvation through faith and not by work so that no man may boast. Right? God has done all of this for you. Now, live a life that's worthy of the calling you've received. Verse 1. Now, don't walk like the Gentiles do. That's who you used to be. Don't live like that anymore. Now, as I said before, Paul's writing this to a particular place at a particular time. This is the book of Ephesians. So he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And we know what the church of Ephesus was like in the first century. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan Greek port city. So I want you to think of like New York, right? Think of a busy port city. And now think about what a port city with all of that commerce, all of that trade, all of that economy, what that brings to it. Well, it brings people from all over to be a part of that global trade. This was a Mediterranean port city, and it was very cosmopolitan, right? It was a mix. And because it was a mix of lots of different people, it was a mix of lots of different religions, lots of different viewpoints. It was pluralistic. So first century Ephesus, it's cosmopolitan, a booming economy, a pluralist culture. Sound familiar? This was Ephesus. The Gentiles in Ephesus that Paul is talking about are those kinds of people. Pluralistic, cosmopolitan people. And that's who this church as Paul's writing Ephesians, that's who they used to be. The people who are receiving this letter have been redeemed out of that, right? God has rescued them out of that. And so when Paul says, don't walk as the Gentiles do, this is what he's saying. He's saying, don't walk like the Ephesians. Don't walk like this culture that you've been living in. But you're different now. It's not who you are. For us this morning, and I want you to wrestle with this at your tables, is, okay, fast forward 2,000 years and a few thousand miles. What does that look like in 21st century America? For Paul to say, don't walk as the Gentiles do to us today, means, well, we live in a pluralistic society, right? It's very cosmopolitan with a booming economy. 
right? You, you can try to separate yourself from this culture, but the truth is, is you, it, it's, it's in you, right? You've been raised in it. You've been steeped in it. It has marked you. And Paul is saying, don't walk like that anymore. Don't walk like the Gentiles do. In other words, don't walk like you used to be. Don't walk, this is hard, don't walk like a Texan. Don't walk like an American. That's not your primary identity anymore. It's not what marks you. No, what marks you now, if you are in Christ, is that you are in Christ. You are a Christian. That's your primary identity. I know this is hard for a lot of you. That means your primary identity is not American. And even harder for most of you, it means your primary identity is not Texan. Right? Your primary identity is not this culture that you've been steeped in, but you're now, you have a new identity. You are in Christ. So don't walk as the Gentiles do. Why? Because it's futile. I want to give you some of the marks. What What does it look like to walk as the Gentiles do? Well, he calls it the old self. In other words, this is what you used to be. This was your old self. What are some of the marks of the old self? What is the life of the Gentiles? Well, I want you to look at verse 18. He says, They were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them due to their hardness of heart. Right? They didn't understand. They didn't know the gospel. That was true for every single one of us in this room. At some point in your life, you were ignorant to the truths of Christ, but now you know them. Paul's saying, look, that's who they are, but it's not who you are. Alienated from the life of God. They were hard in their hearts. Verse 19, they were callous. They'd given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is what the old self looks like. And as he's saying this, he's saying this is what you used to be. So there's two aspects of that I want you to think about this morning. You need to recognize that there is still the lingering effects of the old self in you. And as you read this list of the old self, every single one of us, we must wrestle with to what extent did that used to describe me and to what extent does that still describe me now? To what extent am I still greedy to practice every kind of impurity? What are these lingering effects of the old self? And so that's, that's a hard challenge for you. I'm applying it to myself as well. We don't like doing that kind of self-inventory, do we? But I, I think this passage requires it of us to be honest with ourselves, to say, okay, what are the lingering effects of the old self? What is this, how this culture has affected me, but how have I appropriated it so much into my own life that I still live this way? But the second thing that you need, you need to see, and you, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. What does Paul call this? He calls it the old self. Brothers, you need to receive that this morning because that's good news. In other words, this is who you used to be. It's not who you are anymore. Though you feel sometimes the lingering effects of the old self creeping in you, that is not your identity. It's not who you are. That is the old self. It is no longer what identifies you. No, you are new. 
you have been made new. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So put on this new self. What does it look like to put on the new self? Look at verse 23. This is what he says. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Remember, the old self, ignorant. Ignorant to the truths of Christ. Ignorant to the gospel. The new self, renew your mind. How do we renew our mind? We're doing it right now. As we go to God's word, his word is renewing our minds in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't just stay here. This is not, I hope you've seen this by now. This is not an intellectual enterprise. But as we renew our minds, our hearts are transformed. We do that as we go to God's word. We do that in the Holy Spirit. So be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Verse 24, and put on the new self. Look, it's not who you used to be these things. That's the old self. Put that away. And now put on the new self. What is the new self? Well, it has been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If the marks of the old self are impurity and sensuality and greed and ignorance, what are the marks of the new self? I want you to look at verse 25. The marks of the new self, I want you to see something. What Paul is doing is he's putting a negative with a positive. I think so often when we think about morality or we think about Christian ethics or we think about holiness, we think about what we're not supposed to do. And if any of you grew up in youth group, that's probably, unfortunately, the predominant message that you received. The Christian life is about what you do not do. Holiness is about what you don't do. And if you don't do these things, then you are a good Christian. What Paul is going to show us here is that the Christian life is not a negative. It's not about what you don't do. It's about what you do. And so he's going to put these things, yes, that we're called not to do, but he's going to show us, it's not, you don't just stop there, but real redemption now looks like positive morality, positive ethics. In other words, it's, it's about what you do. So let me show you an example. Verse 25, he says, having put away falsehood, Let's each of you speak the truth to his neighbor. In other words, look, the old self would be a liar. That's not who you are anymore. Don't lie. But look, it's not about just not lying. It's about telling the truth. The new self, right? The Christian life is about truth telling. It's about speaking the truth in love. All right, let me show you another example. Uh, Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. In other words, look, the old self was a thief, would steal from others. But the new self, it's not just about not stealing, it's about doing honest work, right? Not just stealing from others, but actually contributing to others, right? Doing honest labor with your own two hands, Or look at verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, okay? But only such as is good for building up. In other words, look, the old self is going to speak with corrupting talk. How many of us are guilty of that, right? (laughs) But it's not just, oh, don't say bad words. No, use your speech for the benefit of others. That's why God has given you speech, 
right? Use your speech, use your mouth to build others up, right? On and on and on he goes. What does this look like for us? Because if I stop here this morning, you're going to look through this list, verses 25 through 32, and you're like, man, this is great. I've always wanted a checklist of how I'm supposed to live. And so, man, this is it. So I'm just, man, I'm, I'm, this is my daily checklist. I'm going to make this my daily mantra. And, you know, I'm going to look myself in the mirror every day, and then I'm going to go through this, and at the end of the day, I'll evaluate, and we'll see how I do. And, and there's a real danger here, I think, to fall off on two sides of a, of a pendulum. And, and one side is to read something like this and to say, look, okay, here's my checklist. So Paul says, put on the new self, not Paul the pastor, but the Apostle Paul. Put on the new self, and so, man, I've got to do that. I got to be better. And yes, I know Paul said in Ephesians 2, I am saved through faith and not by works. But now that I am saved, look, it's all up to me. And yeah, I believe I'm saved by faith and not by works. But deep down, I kind of think I'm sanctified by works and not by faith. I'm on my own now. I've I've got to be better. That is not the gospel. And it's not what Paul is saying. The flip side of that, though, is to read something like this and be like, yeah, I can't do that. And I know that I'm saved by faith and not by works. And so, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to live in that. And if I'm saved by faith and not by works, then what I hear is I don't need to do any works at all. And if I'm saved by faith, then I'm just going to kind of do what I want to do for the rest of my life. I know I've got the golden ticket. <laughs> I've got the free pass to heaven. And so, man, let's just coast. And I'll just live the way I want to live. Look, I'm going to sin, so why am I, look, just sin. I know I'm forgiven. Look, that, that's the opposite side of the pendulum. Do you see it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. Paul's calling us to neither this morning, brothers. Not to cheap grace. Look, he's saying, look, yes, you are saved by faith and not by works, but now you've got to live. You've got to live worthy of the calling that you've been given. You've been given a new identity. Don't live like you used to be. You've been made new. But he's also not saying, look, you're the one who has to make yourself new. He's saying, no, you have been made new. The only way that you can put off the old self is by putting on the new. They go together. But the only way that you can put on the new self is to put on Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to end this morning. The language of putting off and putting on is all throughout the Apostle Paul's writings. You see it all over the place. We don't have time to go over all of it. But you see this in Colossians. The idea of putting to death, Paul says, what is earthly in you and putting on the new self. But you also see it in Romans. Romans 13, 14. You can write that down. Don't turn there, but you can just write this down. You can look at it later. And I want you to hear this, what Paul says. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. How do you do this? How do you put off the old self? How do you put away this former way of living that's destructive? How do you put on the new self? How do you now become different? How how do you live the holy life? The only way to do either one of those things is to put on Christ, to abide in Christ, to recognize that as a Christian, if you have trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that means that you are now different and you've been given a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that the old is now dead 
It has been crucified with Christ and the new has come. You are a new creation. And so I want you, as we end, I want you to look back at verse 24. Notice what Paul says. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Created after the likeness of God. What does that mean? Who is the likeness of God? The likeness of God is God incarnate, Jesus Christ. The new self has been created in his image. You are called as a Christian to put on Jesus. We do that not by our own strength or power, but we do that by reading his word together, being reminded of the truths of the gospel. We do that through praying together, asking that we could be clothed in the righteousness of Christ And we do that in community by constantly reminding one another that we've been given a new identity as the church. And we are called to embody that identity as God's people, this side of heaven and for all eternity. And so as I send you to your tables, I want you just, I want to read to you. This is just one thing. This is from mere Christianity. And this is what he says. He says, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. He goes on and says this. He says, every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. The good news of the gospel, brothers, is that, yes, in Christ, his death and resurrection, all who believe in him have been saved. But it doesn't stop there. It's that all those in Christ Jesus have been redeemed and are being redeemed right here and right now. There is power in uh, the death and resurrection of Christ right here, right now. Put off the old self. Put on the new self by putting on Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, these things are weighty. They're hard. Um, In some ways, they can be confusing to us. Lord, I pray against any confusion. I pray against any, again, of of the baggage or thought that would make a a discussion like we're about to have um, clouded. But Lord, help us to see plainly what Paul is telling us. Help us to recognize those places in us that are still um, marked by the old self. Lord, my prayer for myself and my brothers here this morning is that you would help us to see that in Christ we have a new identity. We have been given a new self. And so, Lord, may we, as we study your word together, and may as we fellowship now in community, may you help us to put on Christ. And as we leave this place, may we be image bearers, image bearers, more conformed in the image of the Son of of God, Jesus Christ, more conformed to his image than when we first came. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.